Sorry. Sorry to make you awkwardly stand there. <laughs> so, let's uh, recite our verse for the month. Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. John 6, 29. All right, you may be seated. Okay, how many of you like watching movies? Pretty much everyone. Do you know why we like to watch movies? Because we were created with an innate need for story. We are, after all, characters in an eternal story. And ultimately, it is said, every story finds its roots in that eternal story. So as humans, we love to tell stories. We love to listen to stories. We love to immerse ourselves into stories, especially when those stories can engage all of our senses. And part of the reason is because stories transport us. They allow us a momentary escape in which our imagination can take us out of our everyday experience and place us into something new and exciting. When we watch a movie or a show, we often imagine ourselves in that story, right? Usually, because we're all self-centered, we imagine ourselves as the main character of whatever story it is that we're watching. Whatever he or she is doing feels incredibly important. Whatever they're doing matters so much. And even in scenes where that character is doing something incredibly mundane, we know that there's something that is much bigger. There's music playing. Scenes are shown in montages. I, for one, wish that there could be a movie score to my life. And I wish I could know what that sounds like. Like, what songs would be playing in the background um, of my life. That would be awesome. But as you watch a movie, and as you listen to the music, and you watch the montage of the, the character transformation, you're caught up in this unmistakable sense of something that's larger than you. As you watch The Lord of the Rings, you feel the gravity of Frodo's mission to Mordor, knowing that the Shire depends on his success. As you watch Harry Potter, you can feel the importance of the constant fight against he who must not be named. As you watch Despicable Me, you feel the, the deep longing that you could hang out with the minions every day. I know I do. In each story, there's this arc of narrative which builds and builds toward a climactic end. And there's obstacles, and there's real villains, and there's the desperate need for a hero, lest there be destruction. And whether you realize it or not, you have this feeling in your gut that you wish your life was as meaningful or as difference-making as the characters in the movie that you are watching. Most of us struggle with a feeling of insignificance. We want our lives to deeply matter to the world, but most of us don't believe that it actually does. Most of us struggle with that feeling because we long to be a part of something that is truly significant, that is truly going to impact history. But we think, well, I'm just a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad. I'm just a salesperson. I'm just a student. I'm just a pool boy. My life doesn't matter like the person whose life I just watched on a screen even if that person's life is taking place in a completely fictional world. And this feeling begins early in life, in childhood, not, 
not adulthood, because children have an especially free imagination and spend hours pretending to be in the stories that they are watching. So let me take you back to my childhood and tell you one of the stories that I most often pretended to be a part of. Imagine it is 1994. Cell phones are roughly the size of backpacks. Large scrunchies outnumber humans. MTV actually shows music videos. And I, at the tender age of nine, do not have a beard. I do have peach fuzz that I'm particularly proud of, knowing that one day my facial hair will be epic. But until then, I'm spending every day training in karate because I know what I am destined to be in the future. The Green Ranger slash White Ranger, leader of the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. In my favorite show, a wizard named Zordon has recruited a group of teenagers with attitude to fight against Rita Repulsa and her army of super weird creatures, the putties and the monsters and the like. After 10,000 years of being locked up, she's free. And she wants to take over Earth. But at every attempt, her, uh, uh, her plans are foiled by Trini, the Yellow Ranger, Billy, the Blue Ranger, Zack, the Black Ranger, which I didn't realize at the time was quite racist to make Zack the Black Ranger, Jason, the Red Ranger, and Kimberly, the Pink Ranger, also known as my first love. She was my first love. And I've had this conversation with my wife, so this is not awkward, okay? She knows about my past, all right? She knows that I used to carry a, a trading card of Kimberly in my Velcro wallet. Everywhere with me where I would go, Kimberly was with me in my pocket. And I would open my wallet and I'd look at her picture and I'd experience those fluttering feelings of young love. Everywhere I went. And I lived vicariously through Tommy Oliver, the green slash white ranger. He was the coolest he was the most skilled, he was the awesomeness, greatest character on TV. And I had this really special love-hate relationship with Tommy because I loved him just as much as I hated him. And the reason I loved him was because, again, there was no one nearly as cool as him. Okay? There was no one nearly as awesome, his ninja skills were top-notch. But I also couldn't stand him because Tommy had my girl. Okay? Tommy had Kimberly. And Kimberly was mine. And the whole world knew it except for Tommy and the rest of the Rangers because Kimberly was mine. I was supposed to be with Kimberly Hart. And I watched enviously as Tommy held her hand, impressing her with all of his ninja skills. But God, I couldn't hate him. He was too cool. He was too cool. Each of the Power Rangers had their own martial arts expertise. Each had their own unique weapon. And each was linked to a powerful dinosaur whose name they would call out in order to morph into their ranger costumes. Um, and so they would they'd pull out these power coins and they'd each yell, Mastodon, Pterodactyl, Sabertooth Tiger, and of course, the coolest one, Dragonzord. It was the best. 
What is a Zord, you ask? Well, basically, a Zord is a giant dinosaur robot in the shape of each one of the ranger's dinosaurs. Tommy got a dragon because he's the best. Uh, when Rita Repulsa's evil henchman would inevitably transform into the size of a building, uh, the Power Rangers would jump into the cockpits of, of each of their Zords to fight back. And then when you know that it really got real was when the Zords would ch change like Transformers and then join together and they would form the Megazord. And then they even leveled up into the Ninja Megazord. And there was no monster that could stand a chance against the Megazord. And especially not the Ninja Megazord, which made me, as a 9 or 10 year old boy, lose my ever-loving mind. Okay? Sorry, Rita Repulsa. Sorry, Lord Zed. You are no match for the Power Rangers. Now... If I'm being a thousand percent honest, it really was terrible television. It really was. Okay, I watched some clips of it this week as I was preparing my sermon, and I laughed because I'm like, oh my God, I used to love this so much. And looking back now, I'm like, this is terrible. I mean, it's awful. The acting is among the worst you could ever imagine. But back then, oh my gosh, it was the greatest thing I could even picture. Having a mission that important, knowing that the fate of Angel Grove, nay, the whole world was at stake. Having a unique gift, a power that only you could yield. Being a part of a team which, as long as we stayed together, was undefeatable. Joining forces against a real enemy whose sole pursuit was power over the human race. And I got totally caught up in that story. And then I grew up. And Mighty Morphin Power Rangers faded into history. I even took the Pink Ranger out of my Velcro wallet. <laughs> and for a long time, I lived a frustrated life as a loner. But then God reminded me that the Power Rangers story wasn't so far off from my mission as a Christian. That my life deeply matters, and that I have been gifted and you have been gifted with a special power through His Spirit, and that there's others like me, and that when we link together, we form a unified body against a real enemy whose sole pursuit is power over the human race. And I get to be a part of a mission that is bigger than me. I get to participate in a rescue mission to save the world. And the way that I get to do it is being with another group of people that are like teenagers with attitude. Maybe not that part, but I think you guys are. I'm called to be a part of a team of people. And when each of us link our Zords together, we form a Megazord body. And that body would feel my absence and your absence if either were not a part of it. And that ought, to view how we how, that ought to change how we view our worth. So, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4. We're looking at uh, the entire chapter today, Ephesians 4. Paul says this, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now, I want to just stop, uh, stop briefly here and make note of this verse. 
Let me read it one more time. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In the first week of this series, I asked the question whether or not we could call ourselves worthy of the calling on our lives. And most of us pretty much agreed that we would answer, no, I'm not worthy, because we know that we're fallen, sinful, broken, weak people. None of us can confidently say that based on our merit, we have earned the love of God or earned His calling on our lives. But in the subsequent study that we have done, we now understand that our worth is not based on our merit. We have not earned God's love. We have not earned the free gift that God has given us to possess. And so, understanding that, Paul tells us that we can live lives that are worthy of the calling that we have been given. And he's going to lay out for us exactly what that looks like and what it requires of us. But we can confidently say that Paul is not saying, here are the following ways for you to earn God's love for you. We, we definitely know that he's not saying that. We definitely know that he's not saying, here's a list of what you have to do and what you have to be like in order to earn, by your worth, God's calling on your life. We, we know that he's already showed us where our worth comes from and that it's a free gift of grace. So now that we possess it already, we ought to live in such a way that God's gift to us is fully lived out the way that it was intended. This is walking in a way that puts our worthfulness into action. It's walking in a way that displays our worth in Jesus, not in a way that earns our worth in Jesus. So, let's keep going. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ." from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which is it equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up itself in love. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. 
They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every practice, every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. So, we are now in week four of our series, Worthful. We're taking a deep look at our identity in Christ and what that means for our self-worth. How we ought to define ourselves in our identity in Him. In week one, we established that He loved us before the creation of the world, so our worth is not tied to our merit. We did not earn God's love for us, he fully loved us before we were ever born. That line that we sang in that song, My heart has been in your sights long before I took my first breath. In week two, we saw that our identity is no longer with our sin, and God has removed from us the shame of the scarlet letter from each of us, and that He uses our sin-soaked stories to tell the greater story of the gospel. He uses all of our scarlet letters and puts them all together to spell out this story of redemption that glorifies His name. Then in week three, last week, we saw the incredible truth that God has been spending 10,000 years creating us. We are the products of 10,000 years of human history that God has specifically been directing every single little step with fine-tuned precision. And if any one of those hundreds of trillions of things had been even a degree different we would have never existed. And that alone ought to fill us with an incredible sense of worth that nothing in the world can offer. Today, what I want you to see in chapter 4 is very simple. Not only did God love you enough to spend 10,000 years creating you, He also loved you enough to call you to be a part of a mission that is so much bigger than you. And that that mission is not one that is to be carried out alone. Rather, we are called to be unified together for the cause of the gospel and the glory of God. So, if you're taking notes, here's point number one. We are one, though we are ones, but we're never just one. We are one, though we are ones, 
but we're never just ones. Allow me to briefly remind us of one of the ways that the world teaches us that we need to achieve our worth. And that is by making a name for ourselves. In doing so, our lives become one long pursuit of singling ourselves out from the rest of the crowd. We need to be the best at something. We examine whatever gifts or talents that we have and we leverage whatever resources we have in order to climb the ladder. And sometimes that means we need to come up with a very specific niche in order to carve out our place in history. Uh, do you know that there is a world record for most wooden toilets broken over a person's head in a minute? Yeah, the record is 46. And uh, some dude named Kevin in Germany decided that that is how he was going to make a name for himself by being the undertaker of the outhouse or something. Uh, not too long ago, I watched a very disturbing video of a woman named Molly Schuyler set a world record by consuming 501 chicken wings in 30 minutes, also securing herself her third title in the annual Philadelphia Wing Bowl. She is the world's number one ranked competitive female eater. And she's got lots of other very disturbing videos on YouTube of her eating things like uh, 10 pounds of cheese or a 72 ounce steak in five minutes and things like that. Uh, whatever it takes to make a name for yourself, right? The point is, this perfectly fits within the American dream. Go out and Pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Make a name for yourself. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be the best something. And whatever it is that you achieve, the more you achieve it, the bigger your name becomes, the more you will feel worthful. But the Bible gives us a radically different view. And there's few biblical authors that talk about it more than Paul. Paul teaches us that we aren't called to radical individuality. Rather, we are called to radical unity. But that doesn't mean that we all just melt together in some homogenous blob of clones. We are still wonderfully and beautifully individual and distinct. Unity does not mean uniformity. We're not all called or designed to be the same thing. In this church, there are represented many different personalities and interests and passions, things that we love and, and, and individual flavors of, of so many different people. That's one of the reasons why I love this church, because though we are small, we are incredibly diverse. But we are called to be joined together as one. This takes us back to the Power Rangers. Each one of them was unique. Each one had their own color their own dinosaur power, their own martial arts style, their own weapons, their own role on the team. Billy the Blue Ranger was the tech guy. Zack was the personality. As I talked about before, obviously Tommy was the best fighter and the leader. They weren't all the same thing, but that made them stronger, not weaker. And their individual contributions were still noted and celebrated. When they would link all of their Zords together to form the Megazord, you could still see the faces of each individual Zord. 
Every one of the rangers had an individual role to play, catered to their own giftedness. But together, they formed an unstoppable force. This is what Paul is teaching us in Ephesians 4. We are individuals, or ones, but we're never just ones, because we're called to be one. Look at what he says again in verses 2 through 6. He says, With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all in all. Uh, that's a lot of uses of the word one. In just a couple of verses, I counted eight. Eight times Paul says one. When something is repeated that many times, pay attention. Here's something that we need to understand. As much as it offends our American sensibilities, our gift of salvation is a corporate gift every bit as much as it is an individual gift. Each one of us has a personal relationship with Jesus, but it is never merely personal. There are a lot of people who think that they can have Christ without the church. There, there are a lot of people that say they're just fine by themselves because they believe in Jesus and they pray and they read their Bibles. They just don't need to be in community with other Christians. And these people think that they are fine living that way because they think that God is just fine with them living that way. As if it is God's desire to have isolated relationships with each person. And you know what? If you want to work together, that'd be great too. That's a bonus. But nothing could be further from the truth. At no point in human history, at no point in human history, has God ever designed His relationship with us to be merely individual. God has always, always, literally always, covenanted Himself to humanity in community. From his covenant with Adam and Eve, to the reestablishment of that covenant with Noah and his family, to Father Abraham, who had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, to the covenant with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, to the new covenant in Christ, to the church. God has always covenanted with individuals who make up a unified community. There is zero biblical precedent. Zero for people to be Lone Ranger Christians. The constantly repeated themes over and over and over again are the commands of God to be unified together to fulfill His mission. To borrow again the words from J.D. Greer, you don't get your own personal Jesus. You are called to be a member of His body. But sway. Doesn't the Bible say that all I have to do to be saved is trust and believe in the Lord Jesus? Why, yes. Yes, it does say that. But surely you must understand that salvation is the beginning of the journey, right? 
It is not the entirety of the journey. You are not just saved from something. You are saved to something. You are saved from your sins by trusting and believing in Jesus. And at that moment, you are also saved to be a part of His body in your new life. Think about it like this. All you have to do, all you have to do in order to be a soldier in the armed forces is to sign on the dotted line at a recruiter's office. That's all you have to do. You sit down with the recruiter and you sign on the dotted line. Congratulations, you are no longer a civilian. Your college debt is paid. And you did that with just you and the recruiter in the room. It's very personal. But you don't sign that paperwork and then go back home and do your own thing. Once you begin in that very personal and individual way, what happens next? You go to basic training and you become a part of the army or the navy or the marines or the space force, whichever one you've signed up for. Something has ended and that is your civilian life only by one signature with a recruiter. But now you are walking as a part of the armed forces. The same is true of our calling in Jesus. If you are redeemed, you came to Jesus in a very personal and individual moment of surrender. But a runner doesn't set up permanent residence at the starting line. They then run the race with a lot of other people. Paul says there is only one calling, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. It's not different and customized for every person where the church just becomes a bonus. If you are in Christ, that means you are a part of the body of Christ. And the only way that Paul says you can live a life that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called is to be humble, gentle, patient, and eager, he says, to maintain the unity of the body. Eager to maintain the unity. That means it's intentional. It's a central part of your desire for life. Your desire for being a follower of Jesus individually matches your desire for being a part of the church. Now let me remind us again that unity does not mean uniformity. The individual doesn't become lost in the group. I'm not saying that we don't have an individual calling. It's just not merely individual. But it's still a personal calling. Paul says it in verse 7. He says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Each of us has been given a measure of Christ's gift. And then he goes on and he says this. And, and, and it sounds confusing at first. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fulfill all things. Here's the simple explanation for that. Is Christ is the victorious king who not only ascends in his victory, 
but also descends in order to give gifts to his people. Christ won the victory. Christ gives gifts to his subjects. He gives us the gifts of the Spirit. And with that comes a personal calling on each one's life. Remember we learned in chapter 2 that there are good works that he has prepared in advance for each of us to do. Some of us are called to be blue rangers. Some are called to be yellow rangers. Some are called to be green slash white rangers. Um, some are called to be black rangers. He gave me a beautiful pink ranger to be by my side. Though she did tell me earlier this week that her favorite growing up was the yellow ranger and that one year she was Trini for Halloween. So I did the right thing by setting her straight and telling her that that was cultural appropriation and that she needed to just focus on being the beautiful white girl. So God gave me a beautiful pink ranger to be by my side. Every one of us has a calling. Look at what he says in 11 through 16. He says, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which, is it, with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds up itself in love. He says here that we are each gifted in specific ways and we're to be equipped for the work of ministry that builds up the body. And do you see what Paul says is the result? He says that without unity, we are tossed by the waves. We're easily deceived. But when we discover that our calling is both individual and corporate, then the whole body is joined together and is working properly and it grows together. Do you know what that looks like? A megazord. That's what it looks like. Each ranger's individual zord transforming and joining together to become an unstoppable fighting force ready to take on whatever Rita Repulsa or Lord Zed throws at us. Though we are ones, we're never just ones because we're called to be one. And you guys, listen. There is so much worth in that. Remember that our identity, our worth, is tied to our identity in Christ. And that identity is both individual and corporate. We, together, each one of us, gets to be part of this incredible story as a group, as a family, as a team. That's why it's so important that our church be unified. That's why it's so important that we have real relationships with one another, that we care for each other, that we bear each other's burdens, that, that we're honest with each other, that we pray with and for each other because we're called to be in this together. Each one of our lives matter eternally and each one of us has been given an essential role to play. And central to that role is how we relate to each other. So here's point number two. 
each one becomes more of oneself when they build up the other ones. Each one becomes more of oneself when they build up the other ones. So, we are ones, but we're not merely ones because we're one. And each one becomes more of oneself when they build up the other ones. If you think I've used the word one so many times, it's because that's what Paul did. So I'm trying to copy him. Now there's a couple of things that go into this point. Firstly, remember that in the conventional way of thinking, our worth comes from what we accomplish. Our worth is merit-based. And this manner of thinking leads us to put ourselves in competition with other people. We're always measuring ourselves against the progress of others. If they have this, I have to have it too. If they do this, I have to do it too. And in fact, do it better. If they have achieved that, I need to achieve at least that or better. And so there's this constant battle against other people. And we don't feel valuable or worthy if we don't compare favorably to others. So we do whatever it takes to level ourselves up, even if that means pushing others down. Second, we've also talked about all of the various empty things that we try to find our worth in. When we don't find our worth in what we're supposed to, the enemy gives us a lot of carrots to chase. Things that make us feel good temporarily. Things that promise to give us fulfillment or pleasure or escape. But ultimately, those things end up being empty. And ironically, pursuing those things just ultimately leads to more shame. And Satan uses that shame to drive us even deeper into the very things that are robbing us of our sense of worth. It is a vicious cycle. So, quite often... Our sense of self-worth comes from a favorable comparison to others based on what we accomplish. And we'll do whatever we can to make ourselves feel good along the way. That means that our sense of self is often related to our sense of others. With that in mind, let's read again in the second half here in verses 17 through 32. Now I say this, and I testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous, and they've given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to every practice and every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in the true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak to the truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil." Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor 
and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Now here's what I want you to notice in this section. Paul gives us a picture of two different people. One who is lost, very clearly, and one who is living well. The first person is corrupt, the second person is righteous. We could also term this uh, as an unhealthy person versus a healthy person. The unhealthy person is chasing their worth. The healthy person is living in a way that displays their worth. But notice this. Paul directly compares and contrasts these two people as it relates to their treatment of others. He very intentionally uses relational measures in order to show what kind of people they are. Did you catch that? Look at how he describes the unhealthy person. He says, They are darkened in their understanding, which means they're walking blindly and ignorantly. But what does that lead them to do? It leads them to only serve themselves. He says, This person has given themselves up to sensuality, greed, and every kind of impurity. You know what all of those things have in common? Shutting others off in order to serve yourself. Doing what feels good to you. Taking. Consuming. Hoarding and stockpiling. He says that this person is corrupt through deceitful desires. What kind of desires are those? They're the ones that the enemy is trying to get you to find your worth in. The carrots. The unhealthy person is living only for themselves. They're taking from others. They're trying to be more than others. They're finding their value in doing whatever makes them feel good, which leads them to chase a high that never lasts because it's only ever self-feeding and self-consuming. Now look at how Paul describes the healthy person and what they're doing. Verse 25 They're speaking truth to their neighbor, viewing themselves as members of one another. Verse 26, they're not allowing anger to cause sin against others. Verse 27, they're ensuring that the devil doesn't have opportunity to do that. Verse 28, they're working hard to make money. They're not stealing, but rather they're having the mindset, I need to have enough to share with others. Verse 29, they're speaking in a way that builds others up. Verse 31, they're not treating others poorly by letting emotions rule over them. Verse 32, they're being kind to others, tender-hearted, and forgiving others because Christ forgave them. See that? The unhealthy person is self-centered. The healthy person is others-centered. The unhealthy person only sees their own wants, their own needs, their own desires. The healthy person is always looking for ways to serve the needs of others. And while the unhealthy person has a very low view of their own worth, the healthy person has a very grounded view of their worth. So you want to hear something very ironic? If you want to feel better about yourself, maybe focus more on serving other people. Now, In that, don't hear what I'm not saying. 
I'm not saying that you need to ignore or neglect your actual needs. I'm not saying don't take care of yourself. Each of us has real needs, and we do need to take care of those. What Paul cautions us to guard against are deceitful desires. Those are the things that you think you need, but you actually don't. And we spend our time trying to meet deceitful desires instead of meeting our own real needs and the needs of others. And in doing so, we miss out on the mission of our lives. Our worth is found in our identity in Jesus. And that identity is both individual and corporate. And if we compromise on either one, we lose both. We're the best individuals when we are the best members of a unified body. The Power Rangers were the best of themselves when they expressed their individuality through their unity. And the same is true of us. I want us to understand who we are in Jesus because we're the best of ourselves when that is true. We understand that our worthfulness comes when we are serving Him and serving others. And when we do that, we will no, not only meet our own needs, but we're going to spend a fruitful life of serving other people and participating in the mission of God to save the world. Even if you think you don't need the church, Paul says a proper understanding of, of our corporate mission will tell us that the church needs you. So either way, you can't sit at home and not be apart. When we understand that our worth is in our identity in Him, and He's called us both individually and corporately, we get to be a part of that mission. And I hope that that is what you will consider when the enemy tries to fool you into thinking that you only have to serve yourself in order to be happy. Remind him and remind himself that you are a part of a bigger story, a bigger mission, and you are a part of an essential team meant to defeat that enemy. So go, go, Power Rangers, you mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for unifying us in you. Thank you for giving us a shared mission. Thank you that we're not alone, that we don't do this by ourselves. God, thank you for every person that you have brought into this church, every person that you have joined into this family of believers. Lord, there are some weirdos in this group, myself included. I thank you for every one of us for the love that we have for you and the love that we have for each other. And God, I pray that you would deepen our unity. God, I pray that in the next season of our church, God, that you would grow this family deeper and wider, that you would bring more people to be a part of this community, and that as you do, we would grow in a healthy way, that we wouldn't just gather a crowd, but Lord, we would build up together into you that each one of us would be missional, that each one of us would be eager to maintain the spirit of unity, that we'd be eager to serve the needs of others, that we'd be eager to fulfill the mission that you have for us. And God, I pray that we would see victory after victory in doing so. God, help us to understand that part of our worth comes from understanding what we've been called to, 
something so much bigger than each of us. Help us to live in the beauty of that. Lord, as we sing our final song, I pray that your Holy Spirit would lead us into whatever decisions we need to make, into whatever things we need to consider. God, that individually and personally, you would teach each one of us the things that we need to learn. Help us to focus our hearts on you as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, we'll close in worship.